0: Welcome to the Athletics of Business, a podcast about how the traits and behaviors of elite athletes and remarkable business leaders frequently intersect. The real stories and hard lessons to help you level up your leadership and performance. Now your host, Ed Molitor. Welcome back to another episode of the Athletics of Business podcast. I am your host and CEO of the Molitor Group, Ed Molitor. And what a treat I have for you today. Joining us for his Encore interview, my great friend, and I do not say that lightly as this is one of the greatest humans I have ever had the opportunity and good fortune to get to know Ted Simeninger, president and CEO of Ocean Palmer and Associates. Now, if you have not listened to his previous episode, episode number 92, Managing the Worry Circle, I could not encourage you, urge you, implore you enough to go back, listen to episode number 92. We really jump into the Worry Circle. His incredible life skills book, Managing the Worry Circle, How to Improve Your Life by Worrying Less, which go look for it. It's written underneath his pen name, Ocean Palmer. And we do have a link to all of his books in our show notes at oceanpalmer.com. So you can find that in our show notes. And he's also an expert on the impact of technology on behavior and happiness. Now, I normally don't go through guest bio when they're back on the Athletics of Business podcast for the second time, but I want to give you just a brief overview of Ted because I want to make sure that I do him justice. He's done so much incredible work. Globally experienced leadership coach with expertise in behavior-based talent development, executive and millennial coaching, change management, sales problem solving, and sales excellence. At one time, he was the number one salesman with Xerox and top senior instructor at the Xerox International Training Center for management development. Ted is also the founder, and this is so cool, is also the founder of the No Bats Baseball Club, which is a baseball-related charity organization that has raised over $2 million with an incredible group of good men doing good things for the right reasons. And I might change that with an amazing group of great men doing great things for phenomenal reasons. Today, we're going to jump into why it is so important to focus on what you can't control And to live in the boundaries of that and not the hypothetical, we'll also jump into why discipline is so important when protecting your head and what you allow in and what the difference is between the open bar versus the castle approach and why it is so critical to treat your head like a castle. And we'll jump into why it is so significant to be your authentic self. Now think about this part I'm about to say, and to treat your client's money like it is your own and how significant it is to chase greatness while honoring your profession. Now I'm going to get out of the way, let you listen to this incredible conversation
1: with Ted Simendinger.
0: Ted, thank you so much for joining us again here on the athletics of business podcast. It is great to have you back.
1: Thanks, sir. It's great to be back. Ed. It's always a pleasure to speak with you.
0: You know, I'm not real sure we can top our last conversation, but we've got a lot of great stuff to talk about.
1: Well, Hopefully, I'll hold up my end to that. I know you will. You, well. <laughs> you usually do. <laughs> I might be the weakest link, as Dan Robinson would say. No, no. <laughs> you no. are the weakest link. <laughs> yeah. Hey,
0: you know, it's, it's been an amazing, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's been, a, it's, it's been an interesting year and a half. And in the introduction, I referenced our last conversation, all the great work that you've done wrapped around the worry circle and where that came from and how it's evolved and what it's grown into. I have to imagine that this last year and a half has led to a lot of conversations, a lot of opportunities in in, in your world to work with folks on not only what was going on and not just getting through it, but growing through it and, and how they were able to come out the other side of this in a better light.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you summed it up beautifully. It's been a trying year for a lot of people. It's been a character building year. And sometimes in life, Character building events get thrown at you. <laughs> you don't go, you know, seek them out and, and pick them. They get thrown at you. And so I think what this has really taught a lot of people, some more than others, is first off patience, resilience, and third would be adaptation to readjusting to the new normal. So it has been a very, very interesting year. And what from, from my perspective as it relates to the worry circle, you know, the worry circle, is something I wrote a long time ago, but I've taught it ever since, and it's hugely popular now. There's a lot of crowded heads out there. You know, what What that keeps telling me is that the need for an important life skill that you can lean on at a difficult time, that's not going to obsolete itself. That's still there. It's big as ever. It's as important as ever. I care as much uh, as ever about spreading the word on it and teaching people how to, how to manage what's going on between the years. But yeah, unquestionably, the last uh, year and a half or so, it's been remarkable on a lot of levels.
0: And one of the things I'm curious about, I want to make sure that I word this question properly, inside of the worry circle, folks have a tendency to worry about things that they can't control, okay? And they can't control what's going on. They can't control the outcome, yet they still spend their energy and their focus worrying about that. What has happened in in, in your experience in the last year and a half? What has happened to folks? Were those worries that they tried to push out of their head? What has happened when those worries actually came to fruition? How are they able to respond to that or how did they respond to it?
1: Well, first off, you shouldn't have a hypothetical in your head to begin with, right? Because it burns a lot of time, creates a lot of negative energy, and you can't solve it. So, what's the point, right? Those things do arise, however, when people have idle time. You know, the mind starts wandering to that kind of stuff. But your question now deals with okay, suppose I let one of those sneak in and fester in there, and now it becomes a reality. Now I got to deal with it. How do I deal with it? Well, you know, a worry circle principle would say, okay, Recognize what's in there. Ask yourself if it belongs. Is this something you can control or not control? And if you can control it through your thoughts and deeds, what can you do? What are you empowered to do? You know, where are the boundaries of what you're capable of doing to address this thing at this particular time? Don't worry about next month, next year, whatever. That might not ever happen. But in those cases, what's happened is something that was sort of latent in the mind becomes dominant in the mind. And if it's something you can control, then uh, figure out your plan and take action. You know, just don't don't let it fester. I mean, if it's important to you, step up and do it. I think what we're seeing a lot of ad now because of the COVID stuff is you actually have more of a bleed toward influence issues. You know, on in an influence <laughs> issue, it's part controllable and it's part uncontrollable. And we've seen it all over the country. Something as simple as whether or not to wear a mask based on, on medical advice. So people would weigh their beliefs and what they read and see, and then decide, they're, yeah, they're going to do it or they're not going to do it. But they're not going to solve COVID right. you know, by choosing one way or the other. person that wears a mask isn't going to solve it. person that doesn't wear a mask isn't going to avoid it. I've seen a lot more of a cloudiness in, in that area of overlap between the controllables and uncontrollables, which I define as influence issues. You have some input on the outcome, but you can't control it. And in those cases, I always break it apart. What well, can you control what can't you? Right. And then own a the part you can control and throw the rest of it out of your head. You know, this is the mental discipline that comes with really effective worry circle management. And what I'm really proud of are the people that have worked with all around the world who have totally transformed their outlook on life and their, how they approach life because they have a, an ongoing discipline to examine what's bothering them. And then they apply the best techniques they can to put this life skill into place in a positive way. And so that's, to me, is the beauty of worry circle management. You can learn it and you can do it and it's free and it makes life better. And then when when you experience that, I want you to go out and teach it to other people because they need to know.
0: So get it out of your head. But what if someone says, Ted, I, I just can't, I just can't do it. What are some of the big blocks or the pushbacks? And, and, and you know,
1: you've heard it a million times, I'm sure. Well, we all have a choice that, I mean, your head, you know, your head and what's in there. Your attitude toward the permissiveness that you demonstrate on what's allowed in there or not in there, it, you're either going to take a, an open bar approach or you're going to take a castle approach. And an open bar, you, we've all been there, right? They're great to get invited to. You get to show up and you eat what you want. You drink what you want. You leave plates and dishes all over the place. And then you hang around as long as you want. And then when they shut the bar down, you leave. Who's stuck cleaning up the mess and paying for the whole thing, right? The host. Now, if you got an open bar mind and you're the host, why would you want to do that to yourself? Why would you <laughs> want to like, I I I wouldn't want that, right? <laughs> well, one of the challenges these days, because of technology, is that there's more portals into the mind than ever before. There's more access means and methods to get into somebody's head than ever before. And so, you know, lesson number one or, or lecture number one from Uncle Ted is look, Just because somebody has access to your mind does not mean that he, she, or it has the right to be there. Right. So I espouse a better methodology to treat your head like a castle. You know, and a castle has a, a moat around it to protect it, and it's got a drawbridge. If you've got a crowded head, I would suggest lowering the drawbridge, examining what's in there, sweeping out the stuff that doesn't belong, the uncontrollables, stuff like that. And then you raise the drawbridge back up again to protect yourself. Now, the new worry comes into town, and is on the other side of the moat, and is yelling at you to come in. You look at it and say, "Can I control that? Yes or no?" And if the answer is "Yep, yeah, I can control it," you lower the drawbridge. It walks in. You raise the drawbridge back up. It's now allowed in your head, right? It's invitation only, and that keeps order and safety inside the castle. Now, if if the same issue is out there yelling at you, and it's something you cannot control, you just look over the wall. And you might do a Monty Python suggestion, (laughs) which is hurl something in the general direction, but you don't let it in. Right, right, right. And this is the beauty of the process. You learn to treat this as your default approach to managing worry, and you decide your head's going to be a castle and not an open bar. Life gets a lot easier, a lot quicker.
0: And I think one of the tricks with that is to realize because you make it go away once doesn't mean it's not going to come back. You have to build up the resilience. And and I talk a lot with my clients about mental stamina, endurance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mental stamina. I was, you know, as you were saying, I was thinking the word discipline. You have to have a mental discipline, a mental stamina.
0: So do people have a tendency to break down when when the worry keeps coming back, keeps coming back and keeps grinding on them?
1: Oh, geez, Ed. (laughs) You know, (laughs) uncontrollable worry circle issues. Create so much danger in the mind that they build up over time. You know, I was just reading the other day about, you know, the, the mass shooting of the day, right? In San Jose, and a worker got ticked off at his boss and his coworkers and decided to see, you know, that guy's head was blowing up mm-hmm. with an uncontrollable worry circle. And when we we look in the news every single day, we see stories of erratic behaviors and stupid decisions that people have done with, and every one of them adds clueless on, on how to manage their head. Mm -hmm. nobody with a balanced perspective in life is going to do rash things. And so if it comes back and festers and you do not remedy it, uh, that will be dangerous over time. Now also point out that I do believe that people that allow things like that to to come back in repeatedly Mm -hmm. don't know themselves that what I call the third head of life, right? They don't know the third head as well as they really should in order to manage that effectively so that it doesn't keep coming back. and. A lot of times, the answers to mental strength, discipline, stamina, all that kind of stuff come from being comfortable with who you are, because until you're happy with who you are, you'll never be happy with what you have. So long answer, but that's the way I, I see that one.
0: Now, I would like to, wasn't planning this, but the role social media plays in this, for some reason, as a society now, collectively, okay, I'm not saying every individual, but collectively. For whatever reason, we, we have a tendency to believe if we throw up on social media bashing what we don't agree with and just lashing out at others' beliefs, others' actions, other, that it's going to make our world better. What I think is all you're doing is continuing to tell you a story that's going to raise your level of anger, raise your level of anxiety. It's going to raise your level of ill will, you know, and it's just going to increase your worry. I'm just very curious about what your thoughts are and how we handle social media and how we handle all the challenges we have going on right now.
1: Social media, thanks for asking on that topic. I invested 1,500 hours researching the impact of technology on behavior and happiness, right? And social media to me, the best way I can paint a a clear picture of what this is, it's the 17-year locusts hatching (laughs) every day. Every minute. Every minute. Yeah, it's wow. horrible. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. And it's horrible for a lot of reasons. One of which is that the host sites are profit-driven enterprises mm-hmm. and they have algorithms to track what you react to and they feed you things to react. It's easy to infiltrate. There is no governance on truth. And it preys upon Maslow's, you know, we'll go to Abraham Maslow's, you know, hierarchy, court, needs. The hierarchy, right? It preys on steps three and four, which is love and affection, and then respect. And when I mentioned earlier that the third head is sometimes you know, who you really are deep down, it's some, a place that people really should invest time investigating. The first two heads are how you want to appear to others, and, and then how do you react to others? And social media feeds those two monsters. It ignores the third one, who you really are, right? And so what it does is it gives you a free forum of easy access to espouse the best version of yourself you want, seeking affirmations. And there are a lot of people out there with self-image and self-esteem issues and, you know, think that it's okay to, to be mean to people because they're doing it inside the invisibility of wherever they're tapping the keys on the keyboard. To me, it's a horrible thing. It's an insidious thing. And for reasons I could talk for an hour, but right. enough's enough, yeah. right? Right. Yeah.
0: You know, and the movie Social Dilemma, I encouraged. I don't want to say i made. I encourage my wife to sit down and watch it because to me, it it punched me right in the gut. I mean, it hit me right over the head. Yet people will watch that movie and they'll agree that social media is awful. It can be awful. Yet they'll still go back to being stuck on their phones and stuck on their devices and they'll fall right back into it. In your opinion, why is that? Why is humans do we continually go back to things that we know are bad for us, our unproductive habits go against the grain of what we're trying to
1: accomplish? Well, there's several layers to that. I mean, one of the first things that comes to mind is that the reason social media works and uh, digital interactions like that work, they create dopamine releases in the brain, which is sort of like the body's cocaine. And mm-hmm. so people seek that because it's Dr. good. I'm important. I was hurt. You know, I have something to say. Circle back to Maslow again, right? I'm seeking love and affection. I'm seeking respect. And we're looking for that validation. And when we get it, it's a huge dopamine jolt. If we don't get it, it's an attack. We have an, you know, an emotional reaction to it. It's all chemical based. And digital addiction is a huge problem yeah. and getting worse. But how you choose to use your tools is up to you. I always tell people look, use your tools, don't let your tools use you. Right. Social media, Zuckerberg and Sandberg are making a fortune off people by this is strong, but I'd say by preying on their weaknesses. They, you know, they serve the first two heads the image you want to project and how you're received by others. They ignore the third one. And in real life, Ed, the only one that really matters is the third one. Who are you really? And are you proud of that? And when you own all that, we're better and worse. Nobody can hurt you anymore. It's a complex issue. But once people get addicted to digital technology, the real danger is that that addiction is treated differently than other addictions like drinking or drugs or something like that, where the person with the problem wants to quit mm-hmm. digital addiction. Nobody wants to quit. They just want to learn how to manage it better. And there is a huge, huge difference.
0: And there's way more to it than just putting down your device. I mean, it's a starting point, but there's way more to it.
1: Yeah, there is more to it. It's hard to do it if you don't put down your device, mm-hmm. but you're going, we're going to go back, have to go back to mental strength. When you put down that device, you are going to go through withdrawal for at least a month. And the reason for that is you're not getting your dopamine jolts. And you want your dopamine jolts. And so we find excuses to go back. Well, I'll just check for five minutes, blah, 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 mm-hmm. So you're still tethered to the cord. It's just a thinner string that's got you. Everybody has to navigate life the best way for him or her. It probably works well for some. Well, I know it works well for some people who have no ad, other social connections with folks. But people who get jealous easily and uh, all that kind of stuff, it's insidiously bad. So, yeah,
0: I saw somebody yesterday, and this individual is in her 70s, and she thanks social media for maxing out her friends on Facebook at 5,000. And I thought to myself, how awful of a feeling is that? I just picture this person that's, and I could be completely wrong, but there's got to be more. And I'm going somewhere, there's got to be way more to life than just maxing out your friends limit on Facebook, which leads me to ask you, Ted, what is it that releases your dopamine? Because one of the most many things that I love about you is your ability to be there for others and your ability to be available for others. And from all our conversations, your ability to actually be, I mean, absolutely locked in and present. Where does that come from? (laughs) I don't know if any of that's true. Come on, it is. (laughs) (laughs) And this was uh, not a setup. No, he yeah, 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 yeah. did not ask me to say that,
1: and he, nor did he know Yeah, I like. yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking for a fast boy, he threw a change up at me, right? Where does my dopamine come from? Uh, the first and foremost, definitely, making people laugh. Yeah. Well, you do good I love to that. make people laugh, right? Yep. And the reason for that goes way back to my childhood, mm-hmm. you know, because I just loved the silent comedian. I grew up loving comedy and the, the sound of laughter, especially. With old people, if I can make old people laugh, uh, it's a joy to me, right? Because no matter how bad life is at that time, when I make them laugh, life's okay then, right? For a brief shining moment. So that brings me a lot of joy. Telling stories creates a lot of joy for me. You know, I enjoy it. You know, somewhat good at it, and it was a gift I've been given. I'm not going to waste it, and I'm, and I like I like that. And what I love with my work, especially, is that uh, I love it when I hear back from people I worked with years ago, wherever in the world they are. Yeah. And last week, I heard from three different people I've uh, worked with in the past from different continents. When you know that you had a positive effect on somebody's life and they care enough to take the effort to find it, because I'm not on social media, that means a tremendous amount to me. It means that, that my caring and concern for them is, has been appreciated and reciprocated. And uh, that means the world to me. How about fishing? I love fishing. I think America would have handled COVID much better if everybody fished. <laughs> and there are two reasons for that, Ed. <laughs> one is that.
0: Of all you know the things get... <laughs> I did not think about, that was one of them.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, but, but the reason for it is that you never get in trouble if you keep your mouth shut. Right? Yeah. Right? If you fish, right? Right. But phishing teaches patience. COVID is a masterclass in the oh. need for patience. Yeah. And because of technology and the amped up speeds, as we've now transitioned all the way up to 5G, we've created a behavioral culture of necessary immediacy. We want an immediacy to communicate. We want immediacy mm. uh, reaching back and all that stuff. And what we really lost in all this stuff is patience. Patience plays a very important part in maturation it plays an important part in level-headedness it plays an important part in relaxation it gives you time to think so I enjoy fishing you know when I was young I used to determine success by how many fish I caught and now that I'm older you know I let them all go and now when I'm lucky enough to catch one I thank it and then let it go (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's, there's worse ways to spend your time thinking about important things Mm-hmm. Then with a fishing rod in your hand.
0: Now, now I'm going to come back to a question about your best catch ever. But yeah. b- before we do that, I, something just dawned on me. You talk about patience and everything you've done, you know, the fishing, right? The leadership, the human development, working with yeah. people, right? Yeah. The horse racing, everything's yeah. been patient. Yet you were so incredibly successful in sales for Xerox at a time when patience wasn't the, one of the biggest things in the sales world. How so it still isn't. Well, it still isn't. Okay, but seeing that I have to sell on a daily basis, you know, I what role do patients play for you, or where do they? I mean, was patients always there for you? Is that something you developed over time, or or how did that show up?
1: No, no, that's a good question, you know, especially for salespeople, sales professionals, right? Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to hire on with a company that had a brilliant talent development program at the time. Xerox is best in the world at developing sales talent. when I first got hired, I got stuck uh, or I got, well his word would be, I got stuck with him. Uh, I, I had to shadow a guy named Max Zahn, and Max was a great salesman, but he was totally unique, and he had his own style. And the biggest mistake I made in my career the first two or three years, because I was imprinting, you know learning from this guy, was that I tried to be like Max, and it got very hard for me because I, I couldn't be Max that yeah, I'm me. And if I show up at a customer's office and I'm acting like somebody else. They're going to smell that. They're going to read that. We've all seen it, right? And I I got frustrated and I said, you know, I'm going to either succeed or fail on my own merits, but I got to develop my own style. And so I worked hard on that just to be me. And so the authenticity that, that that helped me create in front of clients, I think, had a large measure to do with my success. The other thing that was really, really important is that I always spent my customers' money like it was my money. And if I wouldn't buy it, I wasn't going to sell it. And when I did that, my hit rates increased, you know, and I combined those two things, you know, an authenticity of self for better or worse, Mm -hmm. but a sincere desire to make sure my clients invested their money instead of spending it. It created a lot of long haul success for me. And my hit rate increased, you know, your hit rate, your number of successes divided by your number of attempts, right? Mm And so I did better and better. And, and uh, it validated that uh, the greatness of everyone who sells, if you honor the profession, because it is a profession, If you honor the profession, the professional honor you, right? And I've always believed that. And that's what I teach. Man, I love that. There's about a thousand salespeople coming to my mind who don't honor a profession. No, I don't. Um, and there's some amazing,
0: I mean, I've been very fortunate to work with some great ones and to the thing you said to me that resonated so much was you spent your customer's money as if it was your own. Yeah. Now I'm going to way. another question you in our, in our first conversation, our first podcast episode, you mentioned your college job. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) And one of the biggest, I mean, I want you to talk about though (laughs) and you use a line in there that I love never back into the pay window when you're talking about the work ethic you learned working at the butcher.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I hold that today, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't back into the pay window, you earn your money and you don't make money by cheating on your taxes or falsifying documents for banks or lending offices or anything like that. You earn your money. And when you earn your money, you're proud to have it. And then I would urge people to hold on to some of it. You know, don't blow it all. But I think when you have a strong work ethic like that, that's part of your personal brand, part of who you are. It's how you operate. Part of it's going to be how do you measure your success. I worked with a lot of people who made a lot of money who were terrible humans. I didn't admire that. I admired people who honored the profession. And I had the opportunity to watch, like you said, you know, there's a few of them out there that are great and you try to chase greatness, but they all do it by honoring the profession.
0: I'm going to ask you a question that I did not mention to you that I had asked. How do you define winning? How do you define victory? How do you define success? What does that mean to you? Personal gratification.
1: You know, if I did the best I can do, you know, whether it's, and you know, I've never taught a perfect class. I've taught some really good, ones, but it's always the pursuit of the perfect class, but I know that there's certain things I have to do ahead of that class to be prepared. I have to show up ready to go. I have to show up well rested. I can't have, and this is a personal quirk, but zero alcohol in my system, zero drugs in my system. They are, these people in their room, especially they never seen me before, they're going to get the best of me, mm-hmm. best I got. And I brought that discipline to the classroom for as long as I've been teaching because I can control all those things. So what success is for me, you know, in a classroom example would be at the end of the program, when, I, when they all leave, and it's just me straightening up and cleaning up. Did I do the best I could? And if the answer is yes, then you hope for a positive outcome. You hope you positively impacted the lives of others. But the true measure of that is you. You're the only one that knows you know, if you gave it 100% or if you gave it 96%, there's a big difference. There's a big difference in performance and there's a big difference in your emotional comfort of who you are and how you identify yourself and the work you do. Well, you know, I guess that's how I would define it. If I did my best, I can live with it one way or the other.
0: You know, one of the questions I ask my clients when I first start working with them and every single time we talk and run feedback loops is, are you doing the best you can with what you have to become the best you're capable of becoming? When you have the focus that you have on going into the class, going into the training, you absolutely know that those people sitting on the other side of the desk know that it's the commitment you're making,
1: and they absolutely. And then absolutely, add- they can smell a fake, and they can smell if you're mailing it in, and they can smell canned nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. So you got to be in the moment. And I think I may have mentioned it the first time we spoke, or not, but but you know, in in the line of work, when you're you know you're consulting and teaching stuff like that, you know, you're either healthcare or show business, mm-hmm. right? You're either taking care of people, or you know, you're entertaining them. I got a background in comedy, so I'm comfortable in the room and we have a good time learned. I don't think learning and fun are mutually exclusive, but there are boundaries within all that too that you have to maintain in in order to do your very best work, not your best show, your best work. You know, the goal is for everybody in that room to get a good return on the time they invested. And if I can deliver that and I did the best I could, that's a win for me. If I'm irrelevant to them, then I feel bad about that.
0: When you have this gut feeling, because you said something in our first podcast episode that I, I apologize, I did not follow up on, but when you get that gut feeling that you might not be connecting with someone, they might not just be picking up or they're not, they're not digging it, they're not into it. You said you blame yourself, not them.
1: Yes. And the reason for that is there are eight behavioral types you will deal with when you teach. I'm pretty good at recognizing all eight and situationally adapting to each of those eight when those behaviors manifest themselves through interaction, if I can't figure that out, that's on me because I know there's eight and I've done it before. And that just tells me I haven't cracked the code yet. If that happens and I sense it's happening, what I'll typically do is try to talk to that person offline at a break privately and find out what's going on because it might be a misread on my part. You know, a classic example is a silent and independent, right? A silent just sits there, never says a word, gives you nothing, blah, blah, blah. And as an instructor, you're sitting there looking at them going, man, they either, you know, they don't get it. But by the same token, a silent might get everything perfectly. They just yeah. want you to hurry up and give them more, <laughs> right? And so right, you got, might to, find out, right? yeah, you got might. to find that out, right? you got to find that out. You don't leave that to the great abyss of mystery. Absolutely. You, you know, yeah. you find it out.
0: Yeah. yeah. Now, the eight behavioral types. I love your writing. Okay. I love Thank what you. you bring to your writing. Obviously, you know I'm hooked on a series that you have going right now. You have a new book coming up. I'd love to talk about this character. But how much of that do you take what you do and you look at the eight behavioral types? How much of that do you intentionally put into each book? Or is that just something that just happens?
1: Everything in my life's integrated, That, You know, I apply so much of people, places, things, behaviors, all that stuff. I've had a wonderful life, a rich life. I've been so fortunate to go so many places and meet so many people. They gave me a lot of ammo to draw from, (laughs) right? And so when I create characters or situations, I base them in the reality of past experience. And that's what I think makes them relatable to a lot of readers. They can see themselves in some of these characters, or they see somebody they know in something one of these characters do. I don't create perfect people. I mean, all my characters got quirks. They all got issues. You know, I weave my messages uh, through them. I, most of the work, my fiction work that I do, it's, it, they're multicultural ensemble stories with happy endings because that's the way I want the world to be. You know, written a couple of things that were mean and nasty, and that's because I got mad at the world and I was <laughs> telling the world that that's the way you really are. But, you know, my act of defiance and all that stuff is to tell good stories that make people laugh at the right times, cry if it's warranted care about the people and the stories they're reading about. So they're, all my work is a blend of my life. And one of the things I, I love about reading your books is I hear your
0: voice telling the story. You know, obviously, I've gotten, I've gotten to know you a little bit and, and incredible person. And, I, and I'm, as I'm reading 12 Miles to Paradise, as I'm reading Tukey, I'm like, and I could just see you as you're writing laughing, right? Or I could see you at times when you're writing, maybe have a tear in your eye.
1: Yeah, I've cried yeah. during you know what's really what's really something that is when you're crying on the third read through. Huh. You're still crying cuz you should be. You
0: should you know it's coming, you know what it is, you did it, you wrote it, you read it twice already,
1: and it still gets me, <laughs> right? But that's what happens in life, man. You know there's there's times we laugh, there's times we cry and all that mm-hmm. stuff, and I just want my characters, you know, I turn my characters loose to do what they want to do the way they want to do it. I don't govern them. Some of them do things I would never do and, and some of them are much more conservative than me, but Again, I'll go back to the overriding theme of so much of my work, which is I want it to be a multicultural ensemble comedy with a happy ending. You know, it's it's easy to make somebody cry. Uh, It's hard to make them laugh. And I like making people laugh. So if I can do that while we're having a lot of fun and learning lessons at the same time, so be it. That's the way we're going to roll, you know.
0: So your pen name is Ocean Palmer. Yeah. Who has written your favorite book, Ted or Ocean? Ernest
1: Hemingway, The Old Man in the sea. <laughs> that,
0: that wasn't an option. There was no C. It was Airbag. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, who's put out your best book? The one that was your favorite to write?
1: I don't know. They're like, it's like your children. You know, the worry circles helped the most people. When I threw that one out there, I didn't think it was going to help anybody. And it ended up helping people <laughs> around the world. So, it still is. Yeah, it yeah. still is. And so from a nonfiction standpoint, that's mm-hmm. clearly my seminal work. Right. You know, people still buy it, people still like it, people still want to talk about it. And it's a life skill. So that has great value beyond my lifespan. From an entertainment standpoint, I've had a lot of fun with uh, some of the fiction stories I've written. You know, you mentioned uh, Tukey Banjo Superstar, my favorite character. Uh, I'm writing the follow up story to that one now. Uh, I pick her life up 20 years later, a different mm-hmm. stage of life mm-hmm. and a very, very, you know, happy. And, Proud to go hang out with her again. She's an extraordinary awesome. character, and, very cool character, and uh and all that stuff. But um I wrote a London screenplay. We're trying to get made into a movie. Great, great story, great characters, all that stuff. Have some A-list people interested in it. But same thing, Ed. Positive, multicultural, silent yeah. stories with happy endings. Right? There seems to be a need for them out there.
0: Yeah, that that's not
1: going away. And and, and I just love the whole thought process behind
0: it. But the London screenplay, that too. Is pulled from your experiences?
1: No. Well, yes. I wrote it. I thought the story out while smoking a cigar in St. James's Park near Trafalgar Square. Love it. There you go. All right. And I was watching everybody walk through the park. Mm -hmm. You know, and there are tourists, there's people working, you know, or cutting through the park, and there's people on dates, and there's people who are sad and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And so the idea germinated from that. And i blown my leg out at the time. I'd had a quad rupture, and I couldn't go anywhere. So after I taught during the day, I'd get sit on a bench, smoke a cigar. When the cigar was over, my li- I mean, you know, cigar was done. My life was done for the day, right? Because I couldn't go anywhere or do anything. But I thought through the whole story, and then I just I told it. I told it, and it turns out that uh, it resonated, and I'm very very happy about that.
0: Yeah, you know, we'll put in the show notes. We'll put a link to your website. Uh, last time we put a link to the book Worry Circle and your website, but we'll put it there, and I'll put also a link directly to the books tab where they can go and look at all your your books. Yeah. Now I want to, if we can, and I'm prejudiced, but I want to go back to Tukey because you and I had a conversation about how she represents a lot of what we're, we are as people right now going through or what we may be going through based on our situations uh, with his last, you know, we talked about getting off the mat, right. And what happened, can can you talk into that a little
1: bit? Yeah. Yeah. Just for your listeners, the, the backdrop on the character was I, I, she was a very troubled teen. Who had absolutely nothing going for her, a little New Zealand girl. And uh, the first story, the first book, Took You Band to a Superstar, was about her life between the ages really, about really, you know, 16 to 20, you know, in that range. And it was how she determinedly willed herself to great success. And then once she found that success, it didn't work for her. That wasn't what was missing in her life. And so with all that's been going on with COVID and life and the national mood and the global mood for that matter, I decided it was time to revisit her life 20 years later. when mm-hmm. She was 40 instead of 20, because at 40, life presents a totally different set of challenges. And she was at rock bottom again. And what I wanted to talk about there was getting off the mat a second time in life, even when it seems you have nothing. If you have will and determination, you can get off the mat and get back in the game and find yourself and all that. And so that's what this new story is about. It's really about how she goes about doing that. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, and, and she helps others do that as well. Yeah. Because for her friends, lift her up. They make her get back in the game. She gets back in the game. She finds some footing. And as soon as she does, Instead of hoarding her success or whatever like that, or chasing more of it, she turns around and helps other people. And I think that's the way lives are better. I think lives are better when we let our friends pick us up, and we let our friends dust us off. We let our friends push us back into the game. But when we get back in the game, we decide that we're gonna we'll carve out our own niche. We'll find out our own true north. And then once we do, we're gonna look around and find some people that need the same kind of help and we give it. Uh, I think it's a, a wonderful message for these modern times. And I'm very proud of this particular story. And I love this character immensely.
0: And I think that's a great way, as we, said, we begin to wind down here, I think it's a great way to talk about your amazing baseball club and what you all have done, what you've done in the fundraising side, and even more importantly, what you've done for each other.
1: Yeah, I founded the Nobats Baseball Club in 1991. I did it as a one-time thing. And here we are, in October, coming up on our 30th anniversary, and it's been remarkable. Over the years, I've had about 225 guys participate. Uh, this October, to celebrate our 30th. you know, we've, We're going to celebrate that. We're going to celebrate having raised and donated over $2 million to charity. The Ryan Sanders organization, J.J. Gotch, Reed Ryan, uh, they're going to host us in Round Rock, and I'll have about 80 guys coming in, a lot of them from the early years and stuff. But what's happened over time, is that we evolved from being a sort of a baseball-centric group to being a brotherhood, Mm. a philanthropic brotherhood. And through the years, stuff happens. You know, we, we have buried spouses. We have buried children. We've lost jobs. We have had careers implode. We've lost fortunes and made fortunes. But when the guys get together, nothing's more important than the guy next to them. And there is a beauty in that. There's a poetry in that. And I'm I'm very, very proud of my guys. I'm very grateful for everything they've done for me. And what we have developed over time is, is a shared resilience. You know, no man is, you know, you're not allowed to be in a barrel. You know, we're all going to take turns in the barrel. And I, I say that the number of hands that will reach in to pull you out, just is with Tukey, right? The number of hands that reach in to pull you out are going to equal the number of times that you've reached in to help others. And it's been a, a beautiful poetry that the, these men have created, and that I've been fortunate enough to coattail for the last three decades.
0: It's pretty remarkable when you really think about the journey and how you started, know it was going to be a one off.
1: And, yeah. And here, and here you go. Yeah. You know, I, I said, I think the one thing I did that I, and I hold is non negotiable through the years, Ed, is I wanted to create a safe haven for guys to go and just get away from all the stuff. Yeah the bills, the careers, the stress, you know, just, I I needed a lily pad. I needed a safe aid. I needed a castle for my boys. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was the emotional experience. I wanted to project and protect throughout the years. All the guys signed up for that. All the guys that show up, know that, you know, they own it. They're proud of it. And over time that forges tremendously strong bonds. And some of the greatest friendships in this club were formed. On pickup teams that no bats years and years and years ago. Now these guys are blood brothers. Yeah. It's it, it's inspiring to me to watch them. How have the rules evolved over the years? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I got to
1: imagine the one rule. I'm trying to get yeah. JJ and, and Reed Ryan uh, to do into is the shortening best. the bases to thirty feet <laughs> each. But but um,
0: and you know what they'll do? They'll make them. They'll make them further
1: apart. Well, what I want, yeah, I know those guys. Yeah, <laughs> Reed's going to probably put the yeah. bags out in the corners, The after uh, as he should. Yes, yeah. Uh, but, um, <laughs> the rules, you know, I wanted the one thing I wanted to do was to protect the emotional experience of everybody that participated. So, I want I made it sort of like Little League, almost like Coach Pitch, but your teammate pitches to you because I want guys to hit the ball. I didn't want some hot shot to show up and strike out 20 guys and think he's a bad man, <laughs> you know, and so part of what has to happen is you your teammates laying it in there for you to hit it because i want guys hitting it with a wood bat none of this mm-hmm. aluminum nonsense i want to hit it on a wood bat right. and then off we go now the game was easier for many of us 30 years ago than it is now <laughs> so i've developed sort of a senior uh, senior division the telemugs <laughs> and that stands for the extraordinary league of most unusual gentlemen. That's that acronym stands for. And that's all us old guys, you know, who founded the club. And we've got a new generation of terrific young guys and players. That's great. You know, who we turn loose and that's more competitive for them. So you gotta move with the times, brother. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is that is awesome. How does it how does the age groups break up with 80 guys coming back? I know you said you're gonna have some of the original members there.
1: How- you gotta be 21 to show up. Our youngest will probably be 23 or 4. Okay. Our oldest is 82. Okay. Uh, do you, you make Angle the young
0: guys carry your bags and bats and all rookies. that stuff? Rookies,
1: rookies do. do. Okay. Oh, yeah. Rookies lug everything. They, awesome. And and depending on, it, on how much we like the rookies, that depends how much Gatorade and water we buy right <laughs> <laughs> but uh, now the rookies have to pay their homage they gotta pay their dues
0: that's great that is fantastic but it's
1: probably the only league of 82 guys 61 of them are second baseman it's really an amazing <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing collection so how do they decide
0: uh, they go rock scissors paper for yeah. second
1: base or oh they- man when i get tab to play third base i am crying like a baby <laughs> i don't know if you've ever tried to throw a ball at that you know from uh... third to first normal humans don't do that right? Uh, not and on nor target. I, they nor do I want, nor do I want somebody twerking on a, on a pitch right at me, you know, yeah. 70 or 80 miles an hour. So, so uh, yeah, you learn to adapt. You know, I play a lot deeper than. I used to. <laughs>
0: how, how many blown hamstrings have there been?
1: One of the club <laughs> records. The answer to that is uh, well over a dozen, but and my brother did it when we were in Cincinnati recently. So hats off to you, bro. You're a great player at Notre Dame. He comes out <laughs> plays first time. He, he blew the hammy out going. He's to not here and to know, defend no, himself. No, he's not. He's not. Nor, nor does he deserve the yeah. right. But Ed, one of the great records in the club history is that we had two blown handstrings on the first play of one of our seasons. The batter blew his, pulled his <laughs> running to first, and the fielder pulled his trying to get the grounder out the middle. So we had two guys first in oh. to the tournament. So I wouldn't say we're as nimble as we used to be, Uh, but, uh, in our minds we are. And that's just as much,
0: just as much fun. Yeah. Well, Hey, Ted, it's, it's been awesome. I mean, it's been great to have you back and what we're going to do. Can you tell us more about where folks can find out about the great work you do with the worry circle, as well as, um, your writings with Ocean Palmer?
1: Well, all my work is on my writer's side. That. Uh, OceanPalmer.com, Oce, you know, Ocean like the C-E-A-N, Palmer like uh, Arnold or Jim. Uh, OceanPalmer.com. A book, you know, the, that stuff's on there. So there, there might be a video link on there to a speech I gave at MIT about the worry circle and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, or if somebody needs something in particular, they can just reach me through that. You know, okay. send me a note. And I'll give them All a right. call or write back, whatever.
0: Right. Ted I appreciate you I really do and you know that and it's been it's been a pleasure
1: alright man thanks a million Dad. I appreciate you having me it's always a lot of fun
0: thank you for listening to the Athletics of Business be sure to give us a rating and review so we know how we're doing for more information about the show visit theathleticsofbusiness.com now get out there think, act and execute at the highest level to unleash your greatness